Welcome to episode 46 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. And I am your co-host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a contracts manager and a freelance editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. And today we are starting our Publishing 301 series. So we're getting into the higher levels of publishing, you guys. Uh, So make sure you've taken our other courses. No, Um, (laughs) just kidding. But we are getting kind of into the more specific parts about publishing that are not necessarily useful to a general public, but are still useful for anyone who wants to pursue this business to know. So today we are going to tackle the subject of um, intellectual property. Um. So this is a little bit more Kelly's wheelhouse than mine, or at least she knows mm-hmm. more of the legalities <laughs> of it than I do. Um. <laughs> yeah, it's new for me because licensing was not one of my specialties until my most recent position where all of a sudden they moved the entire licensing department underneath me. <laughs> so I was kind of thrown into the deep end of the pool, um, but have picked up. Quite a lot. And it's a broad topic with lots of different um, aspects. So I guess maybe we should start out by kind of defining licensing and intellectual, intellectual property and the different ways that comes into play in the publishing world, because there's a couple of different ways that that can work when you're working on a licensed book or an IP book. Um, so one of the first ones is where the publisher comes up with a story idea mm-hmm. or a book that they want written. And it's created by the publisher. And they then hire a writer to write the book that they have already created the universe for, or the world or the characters or the plot. Um, it's really sim- similar to what packaging companies do. Mm-hmm. When packaging companies, you know, come up with an idea and hire a writer, sometimes publishers will do that directly. Sometimes publishers will purchase packaged books um, or work with packagers to find the right writer. But essentially, this kind of project that we're talking about is where the ideas do not generate with the writer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the IP can be very, very strict or somewhat kind of like a handshake agreement type thing. Um, I have, in my previous job as an editor, come up with IP projects, but they're not, they weren't formally defined as IP projects. It was just, you know, my boss and I were kind of brainstorming the types of stories we'd like to see, and then, you know, just basically premises, more or less. And then we would go out to different agents and, and talk to them about the ideas that we'd had and if they had any, uh, writers who were interested in it. Um, and then we would meet with the writers or have phone calls and kind of, kind of just brainstorm back and forth about what the story would be. And then we would drop a regular contract where, you know, the copyright was in the the author's name. They got an advance and a royalty state. That was that kind of IP, which is, like I said, the more handshake type, you know, like, hey, this is something that we would like to work on. Let's see if we can find a writer who jives with that idea. 
Um, and this happens all the time, by the way, in publishing. The, um, you know, you're working on a project and um, someone in the publisher says, you know, it'd be great if we had a story about a middle grade novel about young girls dealing with bullying, um, you know, and they kind of go out and seek or, you know, ask around, be like, who would be interested in writing this? And it's not like, this is the idea and this is exactly how it's going to be written. Right. On the more strict end, you do have IP where the story's already basically written or or brainstormed and outlined, and then the writer fleshes it out. Fleshes it out. Again, the pay structure for this can be different. Sometimes it's just a flat fee that you mm-hmm. are writing. Um with maybe a small royalty structure on top of that. Sometimes it is, in fact, a royalty structure. It it can depend. Mm-hmm. Um, it also can depend on whether or not you got this sort of IP through an agent and publisher directly or through a packaging company. Mm-hmm. So we did, I think, briefly mention packaging companies before. And... They are they are around, and I, I've talked about them on the blog. Like Alloy Entertainment is a packaging company. They are responsible for big franchises and intellectual property like Pretty Little Liars, The 100, um, Gossip Girl, and my boss used to own a po- packaging company, which is where a, uh, my old boss and my, at my publishing job used to run a packaging company, which is why we used to kind of throw these ideas back and forth. And he worked on, like, Sweet Valley High and mm-hmm. Babysitter's Club and all those sorts of properties. So those are packaged ideas. In that case, I think the idea has come up with a per- by, with, by someone. In the case mm-hmm. of Sweet Valley High, it was Francine Pascal. Um, and then she and the packaging company, so there's, like, an editorial team at a packaging company, come up with what they call a series Bible which is basically, you know, all the things that these books need to have in common, the setting, what the characters look like, what their personality traits are. It's like a sheet that tells you, or several sheets that tell you, <laughs> you know, basically what the world is and what who the yeah, characters are. the rules of the universe. Yes. And then the different plots are... I do believe, at least for like the first 100 Sweet Valley High books, that the plots are actually cut written by Francine Pascal. Like she came up with the plot ideas, even if she didn't write the books themselves, Mm -hmm. she did write them, but she didn't write all 100 of them because I believe at that time they were on a publishing schedule of like one a month. Yeah. They were coming out really frequently. Yeah. And nobody can write a book a month. I mean, Mm -hmm. even as as short as they were, that's pretty hard to do. So, um, and so the, the storylines, were kind of disseminated amongst a group of writers, and then they would come back with outlines, uh, like beats that you know. Even though if they, even though they had the story, then they would come back with an outline. The outline would be approved by Francine and company, and then the writers would commence writing. And in this instance, their names were not on the on mm-hmm. the cover. They would all be under Francine Pascal. But often you would see in like the credits. Um, mm-hmm. or the acknowledgements, thanking whoever wrote the book, essentially. Um, right. But yeah, all of these writers were generally written, were generally given a fee mm-hmm. to write the book. So that's kind of like on the other end of the IP spectrum. 
Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing to be aware of, too, is that when you're contracted to write this kind of book, your contract is going to look really different than a regular publishing agreement, the kind of agreements that we've talked about on this podcast before or that I've blogged about on PubCrawl. Your agreement, if you're working on an IP book, is going to be essentially more of a work-for-hire contract. Mm Mm-hmm. And even if you do get royalties, which would be rare, most of the time it will be a flat fee, Um, you know, but even if you got royalties, they would be very limited and on a different structure than you would normally get in a publishing contract. And because you're not licensing the work, technically a publishing agreement is a license between the author, who's the holder of the intellectual property, and the publisher who's licensing those rights um, in order to publish the book. Uh, work for hire is not like that. Everything is owned by the IP holder. And so you won't get things like subrights proceeds. You won't get things like um, other things that are in contracts. Um, you'll essentially be treated as an independent contractor and you'll be hired to do a specific job and they compensate you for that job and then that's the end of it. So you should also know that those contracts look very different. And so if you're doing research about what should be in a publishing agreement and it doesn't look like your agreement, if you're working on an IP book, there's a, that's on purpose. Yeah, and you know, to be completely honest, IP work or work for hire can be very lucrative. Oh, yes. And it can also be study income in a way that other types of writing and publishing are not. Mm-hmm. Um, especially really great ghostwriters mm-hmm. are, especially those that get hired to write like celebrity memoirs or kind of the big books like that. They they do get paid pretty well, but that's because they have a certain ability to mimic or, you know, bring out stories in the person you know, that they're writing the memoir for, for and able to put it together. So even though their name may not technically be on the cover, you know, if you're a really great ghostwriter, then people, then publishers will go to you once, once they acquire a book by a celebrity. Yeah. You can really make a career for yourself that way because, you know, publishers would obviously rather work with someone more experienced than not. And if you have a proven track record of, I can ghostwrite series books, I can ghostwrite memoirs, I, you know, give me a project and I can do it. Um, you'll become a go-to person for Mm -hmm. publishers. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's that. And then some ghostwriters are good enough to actually have their name also on the cover. Yep. Um, so, you know, so it's, it's a, it's a pretty decent part and not everyone, is necessarily cut out to write their own original work. And that's fine. It You know, you, you can still be... And there are plenty of people who are fantastic writers that have no interest in writing original work, that this is something that they're very good. They're sort of... I know it sounds less glamorous or less artistic or creative to call them this way, but they're the workhorses. You know, they're, we, they're, the industry also needs people who can write basically on command, you know, it's like, we need this. Can you deliver? And, you know, there, and so it's, if, if, if that is something, because I know a lot of people who do do, you know, IP or work for hire and a lot of them really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them think this is a great way to practice. This is a great way to get my name out there because it's true. If you've already proven yourself with a work of, with a work for hire project, then, then, 
if your name is recognizable to that publisher and you do have an original work of fiction, then it might, you know, they might be like, oh, yeah, let's see what the original work is like, etc. Right, because you have a demonstrated ability to hit deadlines, to turn in things on time. You know, they've worked with you before, and so you've already proven that you're adept at the process. Yeah, so... Let's talk about how to land these projects, because it is something of a catch-22. Getting these sorts of projects, you know, often publishers will reach out to agents and be like, hey, do you have an author who might be interested in this? Um, So they kind of already reach out to people who've already been published before and may be looking for for work. Um, And... Or, and But often you can break into the industry with work for hire, not having an agent, mm-hmm. you know. So how to, how to get into this? I did mention this in one of my pub crawl posts, which I'll link to in the show notes. A lot of places like Alloy or other big packaging houses do hold auditions. They hold like open auditions where you can submit a sample um, there's something called Kindle Worlds on Amazon where they've licensed different fictional universes that you can write in. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's like fan fiction. You can write fan fiction in that world and get paid for it. Um, so a lot of them will find talent there. So it's it's so there's big companies like that where you can kind of open audition for that. But it could also be that you know you may have an agent, but you haven't sold your manuscript yet. And maybe the first round or second round of submissions, you didn't you didn't get bought. So maybe in the interim, your agent's like, hey, someone came to me looking for a writer for this IP project. Why don't you audition? Um, agents do have that if you're curious. So you can always ask if you're on submission for a project. Be like, is there something I can audition for and work on while I'm waiting to hear back on my other project? Um, so... But it is, I, I, I do understand that it is difficult to break into, especially the bigger ones like writing Star Wars. Yeah, and I wanted to talk about that a little bit too, because this is a lot of what I'm doing at my job right now, is that what we were talking about previously is where kind of the publisher comes up with an idea or a, you know, a packager or a writer comes up with an idea and then they kind of um, have ghostwriters come in or work for hire people come in and write it. There's also this concept of like the bigger world of licensing, which is big properties that everyone knows. So Marvel, Star Wars, George Lucas, Disney, um, TV shows, TV shows, everything, all these big, big, you know, companies that do films and have merchandising lines and all of this stuff. If you've ever walked into a bookstore and you've gone into the kids section, I'm sure you've seen that there's a gazillion Disney books. There's picture books about Frozen and there's, you know, spinoff stories of whatever. Those are all licensed books and Disney itself does not often do them. They license the rights to publishers. And publishers then, you know, on the author side of it, for for you, if you're a writer, it's going to look more or less the same to you. The the publisher is going to hire a writer to write that book that they've licensed the property for. But the publisher is now a middleman. They're not the end game. They're not the owner of the rights. They're licensing them from a bigger entity. And so the publisher 
um, is not only if you know is not only necessarily going to be paying royalties to the writer if the writer earns royalties. Most of the time, with these really big licenses, you're not going to earn royalties. <laughs> you're going to get a flat fee. It might be a very generous flat fee, um, but it will still mostly be a flat fee. And the royalties are going to go back to Disney, to George Lucas, to Marvel, um, to wherever. And those big licenses are much more strict about what you're able to do with their characters and their universes. And there will be things called approvals that your work will have to be submitted and vetted by these licensing companies. And it's a long, long process. And so usually you'll be hired in advance to do these licensing projects because the production time is almost doubled with all of the approvals that go on. Everything gets approved. The text gets approved. The cover design gets approved. The marketing materials get approved. All advertisements get approved. Any copies that are done for giveaways have to be signed off on by the licensor. There's like this whole other world of approvals and legal requirements when you're working with big licensors. And that's part of my job now is making sure that all those um, I's are dotted and, and T's are crossed. And it's very daunting. Um, from the writer end, it probably won't look that much different to you, you'll still get, you know, a, an assignment or a work for hire contract and you'll be given your assignment, you'll write it, you'll turn it in, you'll get paid. Uh, but for the publishing side of things, there's a lot more that goes behind the scenes in those type of projects than original works that are generated within the publishing community. Yeah. I mean, IP is, is really interesting in terms of those that are publisher generated as opposed to those are being licensed by publishers, like big franchises like Disney and Marvel and TV shows and things like that. Those are generally licensed via the entertainment company. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's going to be a little bit different, but even things like, like Marvel, like Disney Hyperion is a publishing house. And so True. the star Wars novels generally, I believe come out of Disney Hyperion now. Um, and again, they usually turn to their stable of existing authors to see if they want to write them. In the case, so I believe, so this was, this. she's a pub crawl alumna, Alex Bracken. She wrote a novelization, a middle grade novelization of A New Hope when in kind of in time for The Force Awakens coming out. So they had kind mm-hmm. of done middle grade versions of the original trilogy. And Alex's previous trilogy, The Darkest Minds, is being published with Disney Hyperion, was published with Disney Hyperion, so she was already a known name to them. Um, in the case of, like, Marvel, actually, three of our Pub Crawl alums are writing Marvel novels. Yeah. Ma- not Marvel, writing us DC, sorry, DC novels. Yikes, I'm sorry, you guys. Um... DCYA novels, Marie Lu is writing Batman, Lee Bardugo is writing Wonder Woman, and Sarah J. Moss is writing Catwoman. And the reason they were picked for that was because they were well-known names mm-hmm. with kind of, a, you know, who've, who've maybe said publicly or elsewhere that they're interested in these properties. Um, so that's kind of like one way to do, to write for these big franchises is to be just known. Right. <laughs> 
um, period, just like your name is a household name or your name is known enough that they go reach out to you and be like, and, you know, I've talked to Marie about Batman. Of course, she signed a non-disclosure agreement, so she, of can't, course. so she can't tell me all the details. But basically, they kind of gave her free reign to write whatever she wanted mm-hmm. as long as Batman was a teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe the same goes for, for Lee. So, you know, in that case, they did tap Marie because of her name and the sorts of stories that she wrote and said, look, here, you can use our character, but you you can write whatever you story you want to write, you know, providing it's, you know, within characterization or whatever. But we asked you to write it because we liked your previous books. Right. And that is, again, very different because that... Again, that re- that relies on their existing um, audience and fan base, their existing work that they are the that licenses are willing to entrust them with their intellectual property because they have a demonstrated, proven, and very successful track record. All of those women, I believe, are New York Times bestsellers. Mm-hmm. All three of them, mm-hmm. and um, and you know, and write amazing, amazing books. So that's not. <laughs> That's not going to happen for just anybody. Um, but if you do, you know, find yourself in that position, that's really, I mean, I can only imagine how great that must be to be told that you are going to get to contribute to this incredible universe and legacy and, and put your own thumbprint in there. That must be fantastic. Yeah. I mean, it. the thing about publishing, I think that people should keep in mind is that it's, it's a people keep saying it, it's a marathon, not a sprint. But Marie has six published books, a seventh one coming out next year. Before she was tapped to write this for write Batman, you know, the um, I know other writers who have written for the Star Wars universe, like Alex Alex Brackenge. Her Darkest Mind trilogy was also a New York Times bestselling series. Um, like Chuck Wendig was fairly well known when, you know, he was tapped to write his Star Wars novel. Claudia Gray, who is, was also, she, I think had two trilogies or maybe three trilogies written before she was tapped to write her Star Wars novels. So, you know, it's it's a it's a business like the longer the if, when you're determined to stick it out the more opportunities come your way. So even if you want to start out writing these franchise books, it's not going to be as easy to break into them as it might sound even though there are plenty of people who started out ghostwriting books before they made their own names. Maureen Johnson actually wrote a lot of uh work for hire books before she became, you know, Maureen Johnson as we know it. Um, I know there are plenty of other writers who've written work for hire. I believe Nova Ransuma has written work for hire. Um, and there are, pl- there are other authors who write a lot of books under their own name, but some of the books under their own name were actually IP titles. Mm-hmm. Um, but they had a lot of creative freedom. Like, essentially, the idea was theirs. Basically, in, in the case of an author, I'm not going to reveal their name, but in the case of this one author I was speaking to, The editor at the publishing house was basically like, "Eh, you know, let's let's see. I'm going to I'm going to give away the publisher because it this publisher works a little bit differently. It's Scholastic because Scholastic has the book fairs 
the book right. clubs. So basically they're looking for a book to put into the book club. So they kind of went out to all these YA authors, uh, children's authors who they know have been published before and maybe looking for something and just said, submit, pitch us an idea and write us like a, an outline, a synopsis or whatever. And so they, this, this author auditioned and it was first, it had to get past the editorial board at Scholastic. And then what was approved beyond the editorial board has to go past the, the book club board. And they have to review whether or not it would be something that they want to put into their book clubs. And once it gets approved by that board, then they can start writing their series. Mm-hmm. But the, the concept came from them. You know, mm-hmm. They were approached and just said, pitch me an idea. But the idea was theirs to begin with. Um, but that's kind of the process. But they knew going into this that this was for a publisher, not necessarily something they, they came up with organically and wrote a whole book and then sold it. Somebody came and said, pitch me an idea. I mean, somewhat similarly, and I think Libba Bray has been open about this, Beauty Queens, which is a book I really enjoy by Libba, Beauty Queens was not exactly an IP, but kind of one of those handshaky agreements because... Over lunch one day, she was having lunch with David Levithan, who basically said a whole bunch of beauty queens crash land on a deserted island. Go. (laughs) And that's what became beauty queens, you know? So he kind of gave her the idea, even though it's her story, copyrights in her name, etc. So this, like I said, it's not as strict or, or as black and white as it can be. I mean, it certainly can be. For, especially for the bigger franchises and the bigger things like that. But a lot of this business is quite small. <laughs> um, so it does behoove you when you're working in publishing to network. I know we mentioned this in our la- last podcast about the business of being an author, but it does behoove you to just go to events, to go to conferences, to meet people and just talk to people because if they need something or if they need a writer for something further down the road, then they might remember you and might remember what you wrote or that you are a writer, et cetera, et cetera. So like, like I said, it's a very small business. We kind of all know each other, <laughs> um, some better than others, but we you know it's, it's pretty small. So word will get around, even if, you know, like the publisher may not know you directly, but you know, a friend of yours that you made at one of these events or conferences might put your name forward saying, look, I know this person who might be great for this thing that you're looking for. So, you know, that's, that's, that's kind of that, that end of, of IP. I'm trying to think if there's anything we haven't covered in terms of types or ways to get into it or, um, I mean, I think that's most of the relevant stuff. Of course, everything that I'm thinking of is all behind the scenes, like contracting, approval, legal stuff, uh, which I actually can't even really elaborate on beyond what I've said here, because publishers also sign non-disclosure agreements. Right. Um, But yeah, I think it's really, it's an interesting um, facet of publishing that I think is much larger than people realize. I mm-hmm. think a lot of people have probably read IP books and are not even necessarily aware of it. Certainly, I think for a long time when I was a kid, I mean, I really thought that Anne Martin wrote every single 
Babysitter's Club book um, for years. And it actually, I don't know if you read it. Did you read the amazing article about her that yes. came out recently? Yes. I'll that, find a link it, and I'll put it in the show notes. It was a phenomenal, phenomenal article and great on so many levels. Um, but she did talk in there a little bit about this process and about how she wrote quite a number of those books, but then had a hand in outlining all of them and worked closely with the writers who were working on the ones that she herself didn't write. Um, so that was a really, that was a really excellent article as well as in terms of just someone talking about it. And she's actually now doing another intellectual property mm-hmm. work because she's writing a new Mrs. Pigglewiggle book. Did you ever read those? I've heard I, of them, but I never read them as a kid. I loved those books deeply as a child, deeply. I think my versions were illustrated by Hillary Knight and I just have vivid memories of looking at those illustrations and loving those stories. Um, so I'm actually really excited <laughs> for Anne Martin's new Mrs. Pigglewiggle book. I mean, especially I think in the 80s and 90s, in those days, the originators of the IP did have a pretty close hand in creating them. Um, this, like I said, Francine Pascal had, you know, was pretty involved, I think in the first 100 Sweet Valley High books. I don't think she was as closely involved in all the spinoffs like Sweet Valley Twins. Um, there were <laughs> Sweet Valley Kids. Kids. Yep. There were a million of them. I can't remember all there the spinoffs were. I now. read so many of them too. I have never read a single Sweet Valley novel. <laughs> so my mother, when I was young did not let me read what she considered mass-produced cheap fiction. And of course these were all mass-produced because these were, you know, intellectual property novels and nobody can write them that quickly. So books that were on the banned list, Sweet Valley High, Boxcar Children, um, Babysitter's Boxcar Club. Boxcar Children is so wholesome, though. I know, but she also said no Babysitter's Club. So it's not the content that mattered. It was just the fact that they were mass-produced and commercial, I guess. Um, also goosebumps, but that was actually on religious grounds because my mother is a pretty devout Methodist and she was like, no, I will not have Satan books in my house. (laughs) Um, and guess what? I, you know, I snuck home all the goosebumps books, but didn't bother with any of the other ones, which probably says a lot about me. Um, but actually those R.L. Stein wrote himself the first 100 goosebumps books. Yep. And I think he was able to do that because he lifted the plots pretty much wholesale from mostly Twilight Zone episodes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and because, you know, I think there's a channel that does like a Twilight Zone marathon, like kind of major holidays and stuff. And I remember Mark and I watching them a couple, you know, a couple holidays ago. And both he and I were like, wasn't that a goose? Wasn't this the plot of a Goosebumps book? <laughs> like, <laughs> um, So, yeah, I think... I think R.L. Stein definitely wrote the first Goosebumps all by himself. Um, they're really short, though. I think they're like a hundred some pages, so they're not particularly long. They can't be more than like twenty five thousand words. So I suppose if you write quickly, you can do it. Um. Yeah, I mean, Nancy Drew was probably one of the oldest for oldest examples of IP. Caroline Keene or Carolyn? I think it's Carolyn Keene who is billed as the author of Nancy Drew, never existed. She was just sort of a fake author that was created by the publishing company, and then they hired a whole bunch of different people to write the Nancy Drew novels. I believe Hardy Boys was somewhat similar. Uh, So this has been around for a very, very long time. 
Um, and it, there's no shame in it either. I don't think people are ashamed of writing IP, but you know, like I know that the dream is you have your own story that you've written and then you get that published, but there's, there's no shame or in fact, it's great to write IP. It's great to be asked to write IP. It means that the publisher has faith in you and knows that you are a good writer. You know, being able to write clearly and to tell a good story, whether or not that story is your own, is a skill. And, you know, the really good, the really skilled writers are often tapped and asked to do this. So often it's, it's a, it's a compliment, really. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's pretty much my piece on IP licensing. I'm trying to think if there's like anything with mostly I've been talking about IP, but I'm trying to think if there's anything on the licensing side that we may have missed. I don't think so. I mean, on the author end, I do think it is remarkably similar. Um, I think that most of the differences are in behind the scenes in the publishing side of things. Um, a lot of licenses have minimum guarantees that, you know, regardless of how much the books earn, you have to pay a specific amount of money. Um, there's lots of contract stuff with them and there's immediate termination clauses, which don't really exist in other parts of publishing, but that the license holder can at any time with 30 days notice revoke your right to the licensed material for any reason. Um, <laughs> so that's an interesting thing about those kind of higher profile licenses. Um, but again, I mean, it's all, it's it, in terms of a writer, it's all the same sort of a thing. And the licensing is really about brand. You know, we've talked again about author brand previously. And with licensed products, it's the same thing. We talked about Marie Lou being a good fit for Batman because of the type of books that she naturally writes on her own. That something about her writing fits in with the Batman aesthetic. And so she's a natural choice to write those books. Licensing and branding is very um, concerned about a whole image, you know, and that's throughout everything that they do. It's not just the books. It's, you know, Disney World has very stringent rules about their parks and, you know, the appearance of their cast members at their parks and the cleaning that's done to maintain the facade of a clean, wholesome place because that's part of the Disney Brand. And I feel so, like there was like some sort of expose or some article about what it's like to work at Disneyland. I know, I know multiple people who have actually worked at Disneyland. I also know multiple know multiple people who've worked at Disneyland. I had a friend from when I was a kid who was Figaro in the parades. She was a dancer, um, mm-hmm. and yeah, it's really they and they, they also call them cast members for a reason. Mm-hmm. But it's also the parks are designed in such a way that you never see staff go in and out of any of the staff entrances. Like they're like literally like underground entrances to the mm-hmm. like hidden hidden yeah. entrances. You know, it's all part of the image that Disney wanted to create 
this like magical place that was sort of separated from the real world. And that includes not seeing like janitors or cooks Mm -hmm. or anything. (laughs) Yep. To create that facade. And you have to think about it that way too. And it's not just Disney. It's all of any major licensing entity has a brand identity and the merchandise that they license and the movies and the TV shows and the clothing and the books and all of it has a specific place within that brand identity. And so... I mean, if you actually look at it this way, the publisher is just a major licensor of everything because they Mm -hmm. are licensing your story. If you write an original work of fiction, they are licensing the rights to print your book in whatever territories that they acquire the licenses to. And like Mm -hmm. anything else, that license expires at a certain point, at a certain point where the print threshold is low or the money coming in is low. They, you know, they are licensing your intellectual property. And so that kind of works with other brands as well. And that's, but the right, in that case, they're licensing a brand's intellectual property and then have to find the writer. But in your case, Mm -hmm. the writer and the brand are one and the same. And that's really a difference. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's it. If you guys have any more questions about licensing and intellectual property, we'll try and answer them to the best of our ability. Um, like I said, some of this we may not necessarily be able to to discuss openly because of legal reasons and, and stuff like that. But we can certainly ask around and, and try and answer them if you guys want to know more about it. So, yeah, then let's run go on to our next segments. Have you been working, writing, reading, or consuming anything? Um, I'm thinking about getting a book out from the library, but I haven't. <laughs> I haven't done it yet. I am working on lots of stuff behind the scenes, but I'm not ready to talk about any of it yet. Uh, and I have had West Side Story stuck in my head all day, so I've been listening to that on repeat. That's all I got for those segments. Is there a particular <laughs> book you're thinking of getting from the library? There's a couple. Um, I want to get um, Empire of Storms. I want to get um, what's the one you read? Oh, a, a Torch Against of, the Night. Yep, um, that one is on my. I'm on the hold list for both of those. Yeah, um, you might I'll be, be on the hold list for the next, gonna say. you know, forever. <laughs> You'll be on it That's forever. That's why I'm thinking about it now. I'm like, well, I'll think about it now and I'll get my name on the hold list for all these books. And then by the time they come through and it's my turn, then I'll be ready to read again. Um, but I am kind of feeling, I think it is that seasonal change. I'm kind of like, I want to start, I want to start reading again, but just, just that. What about you? How are you doing? Any breakthroughs in book two? Yes, there has been a breakthrough in book two that I don't have time to write at the moment because of the hours I'm working at the day job. Um, I am also reading, I did finish Empire of Storms, which I think I talked about last week, and Uh I just started The Reader by by Tracy Chi. Um, These are both on audio, by the way, because that's the only other way I can get books read. (laughs) While I'm at the day job, I I can read it, quote, read a book. Um, Yes, I did. I did have to ask for an extension on book two. I was floundering in the middle. I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. And I think I mentioned again this the last time as well that the the process of writing this book has been so different for a number of reasons. Like normally I know the beginning of a book and I don't know the ending of a book. 
This time I know the ending of the book and the beginning, but the middle was a complete and utter I don't know what's going on. So yesterday I was G-chatting Kelly and I was G-chatting another friend of mine, Vicky, and I was just... And I emailed Marie, and basically a lot of this is not necessarily for them to give me ideas, but for me to just talk through what I'm going through, and I'm just, like, word vomiting at everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think over the in the process of that, I think I figured out, finally, the pieces clicked into, into place of what I want to write. The biggest problem I had in book two was that I didn't have a plot. I had an emotional arc that I knew I wanted my characters to go through. But in the case of the Goblin King in particular, I had no idea what he was doing. I had no idea what he was, you know, if he was relevant to the plot. This was like the ultimate case of the damsel in distress. Like, just sitting there pining, you know, for something to happen to him. Um, But I, I, I think I've more or less fixed that problem. So now it's just a matter of sitting down. And thankfully, I this breakthrough came yesterday because I was panicking. I had already asked for an extension for a couple, like by a couple of weeks, because I knew I wasn't going to get it turned in on time. Especially because I had no idea what was going on in the middle of my book. But now that I know, I think I'll be able to make the extended deadline. Plus, my editor was really, really great about it. She's like, sure, if you mm-hmm. need more time, just let me know. Even beyond yep. this extension that you've asked for, if you need more time, right. let me know. It's not a big deal. This is why we have told you to always ask for an extension as soon as you know that you need one so that your editor can work with you and approve it. If you wait until the day of your deadline and you're like, by the way, can't turn this in on time. That's going to be a problem. But if you ask early enough, it's usually no problem at all. Your editor will be happy to grant that for you. Yeah. I mean, and also, I I also knew, because I was an editor, the earlier I asked, the better they could prepare. But I also know that my book is coming out in 2018. And knowing the publishing schedule, I can kind of guess about how much time I could be allowed to, to have. But then there are other reasons that I chose a particular date that I had asked the extension for because I am going on vacation in the end of October and I just want to be done with my book before then. <laughs> you want to be able to thoroughly enjoy your vacation. Yes, like mentally enjoy my vacation as well as physically enjoy my vacation. And we are going to Disney, so <laughs> speaking of. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was... I, I, I do feel like there's a big weight that's been lifted off because that was like a big psychic weight on me that I just didn't know. And I, I have mentioned this before, but it really is very different writing a book under contract. And I was talking with a couple of writers this weekend. Um, in town, we had a Bookmarks Festival, which is um, this this wonderful free festival hosted by this organization in my town where they invite different authors and they speak on panels and do signings and all sorts of stuff. And we had a bunch of YA authors come this year and, you know, I went out and I hung out with them and we're just talking business and talking books. And one of them told me, oh yeah, your first book under contract makes you think you hate writing. And I was like, oh, thank God I'm not the only one. Because it really did. I really felt like I didn't like to write anymore. What was fun. Yeah. yeah, what was fun, what I had a lot of joy in, what I thought was an escape from my life. Not like a, you know, escapist and like, oh, my life is so horrible and I have to turn to writing to feel better. Not not that, but just like 
an escape and a hobby that something I took joy and pleasure in, all of that was gone. <laughs> and because I'm facing a deadline. I'm facing expectations from my publisher now. It just—it's a very different mental space to be in. And I emailed Marie about it, and she's like, "Yes." She's like, "This is this happens to everyone, but the first book you write under contract is the worst because you have not experienced this before. It gets easier every book under contract that you write afterwards, but this is the first book you ever write under contract, and it's going to be hell because you've never written a book under contract before." So I feel reassured hearing that from other writers because it really was like, I was like, do I want to quit writing? Because I hate it. <laughs> I don't actually hate writing. I do love to write. But remembering that I love to write is extremely hard to do under contract. So, but I feel a lot better and that weight has been lifted from me. So, mm -hmm. but you, are you writing? Um, yes, but not fiction. I've been working on other stuff <laughs> again super vague i know sorry guys i i'm i'm working on some behind the scenes stuff in my life and i'm hoping that someday i'll be able to be more open about it but for right now sorry working hard but not on fiction i have been doing actually um something that is related that i can talk about i've been doing morning pages which is an idea out of the artist's way by i believe her name is julie cameron uh, and I have not ever actually read The Artist's Way. I'm sure it's a great book. Um, I have a friend of mine who read it and who does these morning pages. And she was telling me about it and telling me about how great it's been for her. And I decided to give it a try. And what it is essentially is that you get up in the morning and the first thing that you do in your day is that you write three pages longhand. And it's stream of consciousness writing. It's just whatever. Most of mine start with things like, oh my God, I wish I was still sleeping. Why am I doing this? I hate my life. And then you just kind of go on and on and write stream of consciousness, whatever, for three pages. It has to be three and you have to stop at three. You can't keep going. Um, and it has to be longhand. You can't type it on the computer. And the thought behind it, which I'm sure I'm going to mangle because, again, I haven't read The Artist's Way. This is just coming to me by way of my friend who uh, was explaining it to me. But essentially, it does several things. It um, helps you to wake up and become more focused, but it gets in your brain at that point, like before, it's like the hindbrain. It's like before your ego is awake and taken over and you're thinking about things, it's like that pre-critical self. And you just blurt out whatever. And the act of writing longhand instead of typing is that when you're typing, more or less, I can type at an even pace with my thoughts. As I'm thinking, I can type. But with longhand, I can't. My thoughts run ahead of what it is that I'm trying to say. And so I have to slow down by virtue of the medium that I'm working in. Um, so it helps you to, it's meditative in that way, I guess, is the right way to think about it. And it's supposed to unlock a lot of creativity and supposed to expel it's supposed to silence like your critical voice. Like I'm the kind of person that every time I'm writing fiction or writing anything, I write like 10 words and then I go back and I read them. And I'm like, oh, those 10 words weren't good enough. And I want to fiddle with them and, you know, do whatever. It's supposed to silence that impulse and unlock things. And kind of the way in your, in your dreams, your mind can sometimes solve problems for you when you sleep. 
um, if you're stressed about something, then you'll dream and it will, you know, your dream will somehow kind of release that tension for you. It's a similar process, I think. Um, so I've been doing it every day for five straight days and it really has actually like had a noticeable impact in my life in a way that I don't think is placebo effect. Um, I've really been struggling in mornings. I'm not a morning person and it has drastically improved my mornings. I feel more energized. I feel more clear headed. I'm more productive during the day. And I also do legitimately feel more creative. I'm not working on my fiction right now, but I'm thinking about it and I'm excited about it. It's not something that I'm dreading anymore. And so I don't know. It's, it's been an interesting practice. I mean, I'm a huge proponent of writing or journaling mm-hmm. longhand. That is the way I get through my writing issues for the most part. And that's how I achieved my breakthrough on book two was like, it was me kind of bouncing ideas off my friends and sort of talking and asking questions like, you know, what kind of storyline does X, Y, and Z or whatever, but then kind of letting that percolate and then just sort of sitting down and talk and writing in journaling. When I write in journal, it's not so conscious. It's like sitting down and talking about, okay, you know, this is going to happen next. It's not plotting necessarily. It's literally me talking to myself via handwriting. And Mm -hmm. for me, the, and I am someone who, who likes to make things. I'm crafty. I'm crafty. I'm, you know, I, I like to draw. I still prefer to draw on pen and paper and scan that into the computer before finishing the artwork that way. There's something to me about the tactile sensation of hand to page that I think loosens a creative part of my brain that I don't unleash when I'm sitting in front of a computer. Mm -hmm. So I'm a huge proponent of that. So if you guys are stuck, you know, I think journaling, whatever time of day I usually do mine, generally it's actually in the morning and it's not necessarily very first thing in the morning. But, you know, after I've gotten dressed or whatever and I've gotten to the office and I get to my office around 7 o'clock in the morning, one of the first things I do while I'm drinking my coffee is to journal about my book. About my book. Generally, it's about my book, but sometimes about other things in my life. And I don't have a three-page rule necessarily, but I do journal until I come to a natural stopping place and then I get started with my work day. So mm-hmm. I, I do recommend that. If you guys, if you guys are looking for that, so. Okay, then we can move on to our next segment, which is what you're asking. Yeah, we have some good questions this week. Yes, we do. Let me see if I can find them. Okay, so from Anna on Twitter, she asked, I can never get myself to finish my ideas. How do I make myself follow through? (laughs) you are me and JJ is about to give you some tough love (laughs) to be honest you just have to want it badly enough I don't think there's any other way around it you just have to finish there's no no amount of wishing is going to finish writing your book for you Mm -hmm. so yeah that's the exact advice you gave me and I actually remember 
you asking me. You were like, well, do you want to write this book? Because it, <laughs> it really seems like you don't. Because if you wanted to do it, then you would do it. Because it's one thing if you're stuck or you're blocked or you don't know how to work through a plot point or something else. And it's another thing if you just find yourself continually abandoning your work, which is what I had been doing. And, you know, at that point, you did. JJ did. She was just essentially like, look, no one can do it for you. And there's no magic pill and there's no advice I can give you. And no amount of encouragement is going to get you to do it unless you really want to do it. You really do have to do it for yourself. You have to sit down and you have to do the work. And that's the bottom line, (laughs) which, um, was hard for me to hear. So I don't know if it's hard for Anna to hear too. Um, but I will say that once I heard it, like really heard it, cause JJ said it to me like many, many times. Um, and it, I didn't hear it all the times that she said it, but once I finally did hear it and, and accept it as truth, um, I stopped having that problem because I decided it's something that I wanted to do. Yeah. I mean, Writing is as much emotional as it is skill. And any any art is really emotional. And I don't necessarily mean that you're putting emotion into the work, although that is the case. So much of writing is just emotion. Getting, you know, opening up your, your computer or your laptop or your journal and just writing is an emotional thing. You have to want to do it. You have to want to do it more than you have to want to do other things. The other thing that helps to finish a book, at least it helps for me, is to get into a habit. It's like going to the gym. Nobody actually wants to go to the gym. Or at least if you do, then more power to you because that's not me. Nobody wants to go to the gym. you know. And in fact, the hardest part about going to the gym is going to the gym. Because I find, anyway, that once I've gotten over the mental hurdle of I don't want to go, and I, and I've crossed the threshold into the gym itself, then I'm there. Mm-hmm. And then I finish my workout and then I go home and I generally almost always feel better. The, the thing about writing is that all the books that I've ever finished, I've had a writing habit. Typically before I finished winter song, the books I finished before I finished them Generally, I would stay late at whatever day job I was working at. It was generally between 5 p.m. and 8 p.m. when the office hours were done and I wasn't working on anything else, and I wrote. And getting into this habit trained my mind to fall into that creative space between 5 and 8 p.m. before I left to go home. And the consistency of writing every day was like a snowball effect. The more I wrote, the more I wanted to write, the more I, and the, the closer I got to the end of my book, the more I wanted to write because I could see the end in sight and I wanted to finish. So establishing that consistent habit generally around the same time every day, like going to the gym, you know, it's it again, like going to the gym, like losing weight. It's the consistency that will get you to finish, that will get you to lose weight, not how hard you work. You know, going to the gym for a half an hour every day is better than going to the gym once a week for two hours. So generally, right, having establishing a consistent writing habit at more or less the same time every day 
or every other day or whenever you can find time. I know that people are busy. They have children. They have school. They have other jobs. But finding that consistent scheduled time to work does much is much better for you and helps you finish your book than being like, okay, well, I will, you know, I have this afternoon, so I'm going to write. You have to make the time. You have to carve out that space for yourself emotionally and mentally and physically. So there's no easy answer to this. You just have to want to finish it. And that's it. Okay, so our second question is also from Twitter. It's from Abby. She says, I currently have a nearly finished book, but I'm confused as to where I take it from there. Well, if it's nearly finished, then the first the first piece of advice I've had I have is just to finish it. Now, if this is your your first novel, after you finish your book, I would set it aside for about a month. Um just just to let it sit and let it kind of, you know, let let that story sort of settle in the back of your mind. Because I guarantee you, when you open up your drawer and you look at that manuscript again, it's going to be totally different. It's going to look totally different to you. Um, and I would revise your book. Send it out to your critique partners, your beta readers or whatever, and then I would revise and revise and revise and revise and at that point maybe start researching agents to query and send your manuscript to but you know if it's a nearly finished book then finish the book you can't do anything with a book that's not done basically so i mean that's that's my piece of advice i don't know if you have anything kelly no i think that hits the nail on the head really yeah so um Go ahead and finish the book. If you want to, if you don't know what to do publication-wise, then we have plenty of resources on PubCrawl. You know, if you want to look through our querying tag, our resources page, and you can definitely sort of look at what you want to do business-wise. But in terms of the actual book, just finish it. Okay, we have another one from Twitter today, from uh-huh. Haley who says, when writing a first novel, is it helpful or harmful to end on a cliffhanger to be resolved in a sequel? Harmful. Harmful. Don't do it. If you're a debut writer, don't do it. You should always have your first book tell a complete story. And if it is part of a sequel, even if your publisher buys, you know, three books, you know, they buy the whole trilogy, um, still have it tell a complete story. There can be unresolved plot threads that are overarching that are going to carry into the remainder of the series. But as a new author with your debut book, you want your book to be a satisfying reading experience. And cliffhangers are are kind of a I kind of hate them. <laughs> I hate them in TV, I hate them in movies, I hate them in books, because they feel cheap, because you haven't resolved your emotional issue. I understand that things are going to be ongoing, but you are telling a story, and you need to bring some resolution to the immediate story in the first book, is how I feel. 
It's harmful when it's your first novel. You can get away with cliffhangers if you're an established writer. Yes, that's true. Pretty much anything in this business you can get away with if you're established and you've proven yourself and you have a track record. But if you're a debut and you don't have a name or sales figures behind you, you the cliffhanger thing it doesn't it doesn't compel a publisher to buy your book or to buy another one from you. Mm-mm. What it does is it compels the publisher to buy the book and then work on editing that book with you to make it a complete story and a standalone. Yeah. Yeah. And readers too. I mean, readers are more likely to read the next book if you bring them emotional satisfaction in the first one. Yes. I mean, and when you query this sort of thing, if it's if it's a series that you definitely see having, you know, more than one part, then you can certainly say this is a standalone with series potential. But make sure your first book does tell a story. Again, plot threads can be left unresolved, but emotionally it should tell a complete story, I think. That is more important necessarily than the plot happenings. That, you know, um, Winter Song, for example, was bought as a standalone novel. There are overarching plot threads that are not resolved. That would take a whole other book to resolve. And thankfully, my publisher bought the second book. And therefore, I am resolving those unanswered plot that's in this one. But emotionally, I believe I told a complete story. That I took my protagonist on a journey. That she started at one place at the beginning of the book. And came to a sense of completion by the end of the book. Even if general plot questions were not resolved. So at least that in itself should be your goal. Mm -hmm. But And none of the questions that were left were questions that the reader would be f- would feel betrayed if they never got answered. They're questions that are out there, but that if a sequel had never been picked up, that would just be ambiguous or open for speculation. Um, and so I, I think that that's important, too, that the things that you leave open can be out there and they can be open and they can be questions, but... You know, like JJ said, the the emotional arc, you have to resolve that. I actually think of The Giver by Lois Laurie. Mm-hmm. That book is apparently part of a trilogy, which I did not know until like five years <laughs> ago. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, but The Giver, and I believe there's something like 20 years between The Giver and the other books in the series. So it's not like a trilogy the way we think of trilogies these days, like on a yearly publishing schedule. But The Giver ends on a very ambiguous note as to what actually happens to our main characters. We don't actually know what happens to them, but there is a a sense of emotional closure to that book. And it's, I love that book. I mean, I, and I remember I read it for the first time. I was like eight or so. And the ending Mm -hmm. just haunted me, but in a really great way, because even though I didn't know what happened to Jonas and Gabriel at the end of the book, it almost didn't matter because they reached wherever they needed to go emotionally. Right. So, yeah. So when we talk about cliffhangers, it's like you kind of come up against a brick wall and it's like to be continued. And then you have to wait another year for a debut author. You cannot get away with that. Now it could be a little bit different if the publisher does buy three books from you. But when you are querying a book like this, you should probably try and wrap up at least the emotional threads of your first book. 
mm-hmm. because there's always there is not going to be a guarantee that a publisher is going to buy two more than one book from yeah. you. And if you think about series too, most of the series that I can think of do follow this this trajectory that a single book tells a complete story and then there's the overarching story of the series. You know, all of the Harry Potter books begin and end on the platform and they tell a complete story within that book. There's certainly overarching things, you know, particularly in the book in book four, Goblet of Fire, when Voldemort has returned, that's looming over us and we know that something's going to happen with that. But the story of book four is complete. We feel like we've been told a complete story. At the end of Hunger Games, Katniss steps off the train platform and you know that her life is going to be irrevocably different now that she's survived the games and that you know she'll never again have the life that she had before and that there's a real sense of dread to what's going to happen to her and we don't know what that is. But we've been told a complete emotional story in that first book. Yeah, I'm trying to think of examples of books that end on cliffhangers in the first book. And maybe... Maybe The Golden Compass ends on a cliffhanger. But even then, it's sort of like... It, it ends like it, with a huge shocking revelation that the there's been a path created between universes now for the first time. And it sort of ends with Lyra talking to Pantalaimon, her demon, and just resolving, okay, we're going to follow our father into this great new world and see what lies beyond. And that's kind mm-hmm. of the end of the book. It's not not an actual abrupt, <gasps> huge reveal, and then it ends. It ends with a huge reveal, but it emotionally it's like, okay, well, we're looking forward to the next chapter. That's kind of the only one I can think of. In fact, I figure I I find that most trilogies tend to follow the pattern of book one tends to tell kind of a complete story. Book two hangs on a cliffhanger, mm-hmm. yeah, to be resolved in book three. I feel like that has happened. That's happened with Lee's Grisha books. Mm-hmm. Uh, this has happened with the first trilogy of Cassandra Clare's Mortal Instruments. The first book ended kind of it ended. It had a complete yeah. story, and then book two ended on a cliffhanger. Um, I can't think of too many at the moment of which ends on, on terrible cliffhangers, but that typically seems to be the pattern. But for the most part, book one should be a complete book in and of itself. Okay. So we have a couple of questions from the blog, actually, from our uh-huh. Cup blog. One of them, Amber J said... I recently saw a reader include this comment in her review about a book that was recently released. Quote, And sometimes great characters like X get kicked to the side or out because the author themselves starts crushing on some random new character. And the question is, how do you keep yourself from getting too excited or sidetracked by the introduction of a new character of a new character or setting in your story? There's a lot to unpack with this one. This, I mean, I think we can't really answer this without touching on our previous recent podcast um, where we talked a little bit about the fact that writers don't owe anybody anything. Mm-hmm. Um, writers write the stories they want to write. And I mean, if a writer loses interest in one character and and becomes interested in another and wants to tell that other story, then 
that's what they're going to do. There's lots of times that I have disagreed vehemently. Anybody who's ever talked to me about Deathly Hallows knows this. I have strong, strong disagreements um, with what writers choose to do with their characters and their worlds as a reader. And I feel emotional about it and personally betrayed and less interested in the story because it's not being told the way that I want it to be told. And ultimately, that's my problem as a reader. That's like my own personal little deal. And I think that there's a danger in writers trying to cater to that too much. I agree. There, I mean, there are huge blowups here and there in fiction about the fate of characters or whatever. I believe there was a long, I believe it's actually the Sicky Stackhouse books by Charlene Harris that Mm. ended with a romantic couple that a lot of people did not like. And of course, I haven't actually read the Sicky Stackhouse novels, but and so I, I read the first one, and it's actually quite good. <laughs> I um, enjoyed it. I yeah, I, I just never got around to reading them. I know plenty of people who enjoy them, but I do believe the series ended with a romantic mm-hmm. couple that the that a lot of of fans and readers were not happy about, and that's not the author's problem. To be honest, the author wanted to write this story, and therefore the author wrote that story. If the fans didn't like it, then they are free to write fan fiction. They are free to create alternate universes of their own. But it it's not on them, you know. If 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 a reader says, "Oh, so and so is writing this book," and you know they're ignoring previous characters in favor of a new one they like better, well. Okay, that's that's still on the that's still the author's choice. The property in the process of being written still belongs to that author. You know, once books are out into the world, I believe they belong to their readers. But once the but as books are being written, they still belong to the author. They're the mm-hmm. ones creating the story. The fans are not the ones creating the story. As I said before, that is what fan fiction is for. So what do we think about the comment? Well, sorry for the reader who feels that way, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think there's a whole interesting question of, like, the death of the author. And I think that, you know, there's lots of interesting interpretations. And this is why literary theory exists, right? You have feminist theory, you have queer theory, you have all of these different literary theories that you can apply to a text, regardless of whether or not an author ever intended any Mm -hmm. of those things to be present. But it's the process of mining the text and finding textual evidence for the things that you can see. And I think that is a wonderful practice and amazing. And I think that all readers are going to engage with the text differently. And I think that that relationship between a reader and the text is sacred. And I think it's totally fine to be completely disappointed in the way a book turns out. Because God knows I have been. Um, that's fine. That's that's completely fine. But I think that the question as asked you know, was kind of like, what do you do to prevent that? Like, what do you do to stifle your own interests? If your interests want to go off over here, what do you do to cut that off and stay in this track? And I just don't think that's a productive way to create. I think you have to go where you want to go and where your interest is, because quite honestly, If you're divided between two characters and you know one is a fan favorite and has maybe had a large role in some of your early books and has a really positive reader response to that character, 
but your interest has now been focused on on this different new character and you want to explore that character more you want to tell that character's stories but you feel obligated to stick with the fan favorite because you don't want to upset your fans and destroy their expectations the writing isn't going to be as good because you don't want to write about that character you're going to force yourself to do it because you feel obligated to but it's not going to have the same quality because the curiosity isn't there. You would rather be doing something else. And I think that will be palpable in your writing. The The thing about writing, when you write, write what interests you and because it's yours, you're the one that's creating. So don't stifle your creativity because of what you presume other people want from you. I think that's, that's not the best way to go. I mean, if, even if you look at Buffy, okay, the TV show Buffy, her Great love in the early seasons is Angel. And then over the course... I don't know how long. Buffy ran for, what, seven seasons? Seven seasons. So so over the course of the seven seasons, I think Angel left after season two. And then... Yeah, season three. And then, like, kind of... There were four seasons without without him. him. And he was, like, her great angsty love. But over the course of the show, her relationship with another character, Spike, began to shift and change. And therefore, by the end of that series, romantically, she was paired with Spike because that was just the way the show evolved. That was the way the characters evolved. Um, And that happens in long-running series and books as well. You know, like, books that are less than three books, like less than a trilogy, like a trilogy or less, like, if if there's, like, a big about face in, like, between books two and three, then it's a little bit like, whoa, 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 whoa. But books that run for longer than that, characters grow and change. Writers grow and change. I don't think there's anything wrong if something is interesting you more to follow that direction creatively. So I don't think you should stifle yourself. You are writing for an audience, yes, but it doesn't mean that readers are entitled to your creative process. So... Okay, we have one last question from the blog from Emily, who says, I'd love to know both of your opinions on Warner Brothers wanting to turn the cursed child into another Harry Potter movie trilogy. I say another because some people consider Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them an HP trilogy. I think it's terrible. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that turning single stories into splitting them up to get more money because it's got to be a money grab because there's no artistic or narrative reason to do it. Um, I, I think it's a terrible idea. I think we're seeing that with Divergent. The final Divergent movie is having a lot of problems right now um, and might not actually be a movie. It might become a TV special. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think that a lot of that is because it was it was split in this way. And I also think, too, that theater and film are different mediums. And this was intentionally written for the theater. I have a lot of other thoughts about the cursed child <laughs> separately that I won't get into. Um, but I mean, I I think we can safely say it's a money grab, and that, you know what? That's okay too. People deserve to get paid for their work. I I am not a person who thinks that um, just because something is art does not mean that it's above monetary value. <laughs> uh, get get paid for your hard work, people. Um, you know, so so I I have 
I have conflicting thoughts about it. I'm not psyched about it. I'm not necessarily um, gonna gonna go see it in theaters. That might be a Netflix view for me, uh, if and when it ever happens. Um, but yeah, listen to the podcast Oh Witch Please for some really excellent thoughts on the Cursed Child, which they just did in their most recent episodes, and uh, they'll probably say a lot of my similar thoughts more eloquently and with more uh, academic flair than I ever could. Yeah, I'm just, I mean, I, like I said, I read The Cursed Child and I thought it was really interesting and I really liked parts of it. I thought other parts of it were, what? <laughs> yes. Um, I'm not interested in it. I mean, if they want to make a movie, they can absolutely go ahead and make a movie. I mean, why not? If you're a completionist, then sure. But I have no interest in it because for me, Harry's story's Harry's story has ended, and reading beyond Harry's story, where it ends in the books, is just not interesting to me. And watching a movie of it is also not interesting to me. I would actually like to see the play because I would like to see how a lot of this gets executed on stage. Yes, I think that would be really, really interesting, and I think especially. Considering who the actors are, I do love Jamie Parker a lot. He's the guy who plays grown-up Harry Potter. I have seen him since he was very young when he was in a production of The History Boys. When I was living in England, I saw him. I saw a lot of theater when I was living in England, but like you know, he was in the production of The History Boys, and he was also uh, Prince Hal in Henry V. And I think I think he's a really lovely actor, and I think he's fantastic. So I would see it for him because I think he's a good actor. Um, but aside from that, the actual story is not what's pulling me into the theater. It's the actor, it's the production, it's a bunch of other stuff. Um, as far as the Fantastic Beasts and where to find them, uh, I mean, I think it could be cool on its own because it's not related directly to Harry. It's set in the same universe. And I think it, I think... The universe of Harry Potter is big enough to support all kinds of stories. So in some respects, I'm less eh about Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. There are other reasons that I'm eh about that movie franchise. Um, Uh But on principle, I don't have a problem with it. And on principle, I don't have a problem with a movie trilogy of The Cursed Child, but I just won't be seeing it in the theater. that's That's just my thoughts. So... Okay, I think that's the last question. Thank you guys all so much for submitting them and and continue to send them in. Um, I think Kelly and I will start getting, you know, getting our recommendations back together soon. Um, Uh But in the meantime, and and beyond, I I, I think we do, I like to answer these questions. I don't know about you. I do too. Yeah, because a lot of them too, it's not, there's not a whole podcast worth of material. But it's nice to be able to, you know, get these questions and answer them and um, think about some of them because you guys raise really interesting, smart questions. So I think we should keep this segment no matter what, even once we do get back to our regularly scheduled (laughs) stuff. So definitely keep sending us questions. All right. So then the last segment that we do have is um, what you're saying. This is a review from The Girls Distracted. Great podcast for writers. As a writer in the throes of revising slash rewriting my first novel, I can use all the writing advice I can get. I look forward to listening to this podcast on my commute every week. 
JJ and Kelly are both really knowledgeable about the publishing business, and I love that we hear about the publishing experience from multiple angles, from authors to marketers to editors. While every writer knows to take any writing advice with a grain of salt, what's right for you might not might be the very worst thing for me after all, I love the friendly and open advice and the candid, candid way they talk about what works or doesn't in stories they love. Currently loving the episodes on characterization. Keep them coming. <laughs> so thank you for that. Um, we're glad you find this useful. Um, we have lots of opinions about what works <laughs> and what doesn't work in stories. So you'll, you'll be continually getting that anyway. <laughs> yeah. In case you hadn't noticed, this is kind of an opinionated podcast. All right. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be continuing our Publishing 301 series by talking about permissions and fair use. Mm. So, as always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please do rate and review when you get a chance, as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. You can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. And you can follow me, Kelly, at bookishchick on Twitter or Instagram or on my website at penandparsley.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowen, author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye. doing JJ is stuck drafting sleep <laughs> you lucky seal you <laughs>